We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Okay. All right. And we'll get started. <laughs> okay. Um, I am Angelica. I go by Angie. And my sobriety date is January 7th, 2021. Um, let's see. <laughs> Early in the morning and getting my thoughts collected. I uh, started... Uh, I am an alcoholic, a true alcoholic in every sense of the word, um, but I also am an addict, and I'm an addict in so many different ways other than just addicted to alcohol, addicted to drugs, addicted to, you know, I was addicted to relationships, I was addicted to um, things. If I like something, I'll buy it in abundance, I'll have to have it in every color. If I do something, I have to do it in extravagance, or if I eat, I eat in extravagance, I have... <laughs> Uh, an overindulgent personality of um, of nature. Um, but how it started for me, I believe, was uh, <clears throat> early on in my years. Um, first memories that I'd like to remember were always pleasant and always uh, wonderful. And uh, I was a happy kid, you know, and played with my mom and my dad and loved my brother and my sister. And, and I grew up what I thought, you know, and what everybody I think wants to think is normal. Um, even to that point where I didn't know we were poor until somebody told me in school one time, I remember coming home going, mom, we're poor. <laughs> and I thought everything was like fine, you know, cause we're so happy. And, 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 uh, you know, I never heard my parents complaining about bills and about, you know, um, things they didn't want us to deal with that. My parents were very careful into, not bringing us into their arguments and their fights, but, um, you know, and their problems. But, uh, you know, being in a, in a large Hispanic family is where I come from. Um, no matter how far they tried to get away from their past, it always would come back. And, you know, being that, that Hispanic family um, that moves on and, and gets their, their selves together, uh, uncles and you know, family members would come and stay with us and, you know, the house got bigger and bigger with relatives on the outside of our immediate little circle. And unfortunately, those people took advantage of us kids, um, my sister, my brother included. And uh, I remember my sister telling me, you know, um, warning me actually at one point <clears throat> that, uh, you know, to watch out for one of our uncles and, you know, not to let him play with us, you know, at night by ourselves. And I remember being so young, but yet I didn't have the heart to tell my sister that it had already happened. And I realized then just like finding out I was poor or finding out, you know, we had problems or finding out life wasn't normal, that that wasn't normal either, you know, and, and being a kid that really Fs with your head to think that, you know, that wasn't supposed to happen, you know, and it wasn't done violently and it wasn't done evilly and it wasn't done in a way that, you know, I would, um, 
I would have thought was bad. And, and, and that really messed with me as a kid, because then I felt guilt. I felt guilt that I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't stop it or I didn't, I didn't put an end to it. So I held that on. And, and my sister says, don't tell dad because if dad finds out, dad will be so upset. And, you know, so I, at an early, early age, learned to grit my teeth, smile and act like everything was okay and stuff my feelings. Fast forwarding a little bit later, you know, we moved a lot. Uh, growing up, uh, I moved a lot with my father uh, for his job, not military, but for his job. And uh, and I was always a new kid in school, so I couldn't wait to get home to hang out with my brother and my sister, the only two friends I had that were five and six years older than me. And um, if you've ever seen a cartoon called Bob's Burgers, that was me, my brother, and my sister, completely. <laughs> I was Louise, the little shithead that when I was getting in trouble and I was, you know, and my sister was the weird oddball, you know, into zombies. And my brother was all about farts. So I remember that that's the way I grew up and I loved it. And I thought it was wonderful. But growing up, uh, not being very Hispanic, of uh, you know, what the stereotypical Hispanic should be like, don't, I don't speak Spanish myself. Um, when I was around 14, I started getting bullied and I started getting uh, picked on in school and I would get my butt kicked almost every afternoon and, and I started to really start to shut down, you know, I started to really shut down. And, uh, you know, because we're around a gang area and whatnot, my parents decided to move to Moreno Valley so that everything would be better. You know, it was a new city. It was a new place. It was new and better and good for the kids. And when I went there, I had this newfound, undeserved, ununderstanded popularity. Suddenly everybody wanted to be my friend and I did not know how to handle it. I, 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 it, it overwhelmed me. And with this started coming the drinking and uh, I didn't really drink the way that I drank at the end of my uh, alcoholism. At the peak of my disease, um, I would just have a beer here and there for socializing. What I started with, which is opposite for most people, is my gateway drug was actually meth. And at 14, I started selling meth to all these preppy kids and I was so popular and I had my boyfriend was the, you know, dealer and I had, um, I had a car at a young age. My dad got me this little VW that I would drive around and I always had money and I was this little punk rock girl. This is about the time when Nirvana, I'm aging myself, Nirvana and a hole and all those came out. So I had the colored hair and used to wear dinosaurs on my head and army men and all the weird clothes. And for that, I was super popular. Something that used to get me, you know, ostracized and, and pummeled and, and, uh, you know, whatnot. I, I now all of a sudden, this is like, what's making me super popular. Like everybody wants to know me. And I really didn't understand. I didn't know how to deal with it. I really didn't get it. I, I, I would think what's wrong with you. Why do you guys want to hang out with me? I'm like, don't you understand? I'm not cool. Like I'm not, I'm not the person you want to hang out with. So with this, I, I really had a really weird, awkward social awkwardness to me. Like I, I, I would get invited to the parties, but I'd rather go hang out and play pool with my dad, you know, and I would work on cars and I would do things with my dad all the time, which is where the sip of beer here and there came in, which was allowed, you know, my dad treated me like his son. My brother was very, very nerdy and he was very um, into computers and video games and he wasn't really one to, 
to, um, you know, he wasn't really one to, to want to do the stereotypical boy things. And I was, so, you know, it was cool for me to sit there and have a beer with my dad. And it was cool for me to sit there and, and, and shoot the shit with my dad. But I did have my, my social life that I had. And like I said, I, I, I was doing meth and I was selling meth. I was selling meth to the preppy kids and then I would have it already pre-made. And this is where my disease starts (laughs) is where I see this opportunity where I can take the eight ball and break it for them, pre-crush it for these kids that don't know how to do it. And uh, I would cut half of the eight ball with the, uh, with Vibrin, <laughs> you know, those little uh, caffeine pills that the uh, the truckers take. And uh, I was super popular for that. <laughs> they loved mine. It was, you know, the come down was so great. And I'm thinking all it was is a couple of cups of coffees that you had. And that was so I can have my own supply. So I would take the other half of the eight ball and I was snorting it like crazy. And I was doing that for a good uh, from 14 to 19. Um, and I had the boyfriend that, you know, and, and, and the funny thing is, this is another manipulation of, what we're so good at is I, I used my past, my history of, of, uh, you know, abuse to not do anything with this guy. Cause I didn't want to have sex with him. I wasn't even attracted to him. I, I just liked that he had meth. I just liked that he gave me what I wanted. And, um, and so never had to touch him, never had to do anything. I was treated like this porcelain doll, you know, that he would just kind of keep around little, did he know I'm here banging all these guys behind his back and, being crazy and doing whatever it is that I want to do. But to him, I'm this, you know, virgin, pure, you know, thing that, you know, sells his dope for him. And um, I did that for a while. Um, I remember when I finally tried to cut it off with him, I think it was around 17 years old. And that was the first attempt that I had at quitting. And I told him I wasn't going to hang around with him anymore. And I wasn't going to be there with him anymore. And uh and uh, he begged me one more night just to stay there because I would just sleep in his bed and watch his big screen TV and do whatever I wanted, had for run of the house. And uh, I said no, and I left. And I got a phone call the next day where somebody asked me if I was okay. And uh, I said, you know, yeah, I'm fine. What happened? And they said, oh, well, Fred got shot up. He's gone, you know. And I know if I would have stayed in that house with him, I would have got shot up myself the same. And uh, that to me was scary. I mean, that was my first taste of violence in in addiction and violence in in the drug world or whatnot. And uh, like you think, you know, bottoms or whatnot, you think that would make me stop, quit, get better, be good. But it was another two years before I would stop doing meth. Um, And it took another tragedy for that to happen. I remember I was... I was drinking and using, and uh, I found out I was pregnant. And uh, I had been pregnant for I don't know how long, because during this period of time when you put the body through such strain, you know, a menstrual cycle is unheard of. You just don't know when it's going to happen, and you're not even paying attention. So far along, I'm realizing that if I have this kid, this kid's probably going to be pretty damn jacked up. And you know, whether or not that was an excuse in my head or I just wasn't ready to have one or if I was just feeling guilt or if I was worried I was going to get busted because if I had a baby with, 
you know, some kind of chemical in it. I was going to get, you know, arrested or whatnot, whatever choice it was that I had. And I know my mind was going a million different directions at that time. I made the decision to have an abortion and it's still a decision to this day that I know we're not supposed to regret things in our life. Everything's a learning lesson, but I still regret that one. I still regret that one because at this point right now, I would have a beautiful 24 year old that I would sure would love. And uh, I'm not a mother and I've never had the opportunity to have children. And that's something that still uh, crushes me to this day. That's what got me sober off of that. But dealing with all the pain, oh, and backwards throughout this process, again, with doing the, the dope deals and whatnot, one had gone wrong. And, um, you know, I was over in an area in Moreno Valley by San Bernardino where there was a lot of skinheads and um, a lot of uh, neo-Nazis. And uh, one of the drug deals had gone bad and I had gotten raped because of having dope or a deal went wrong or Fred owed somebody or something happened. And, and I couldn't really remember what the fight was all about and how much you know, side stories went from it, but I do remember being brutally raped in a dirty side of a house. So that's another thing I carry with me. And again, you would think that that would have been the thing that would have gotten me sober, but that didn't, you know, and again, with any addiction, you know, the horrible things, we don't want to connect the horrible things that happen in addiction to the addiction itself, you know, it's people, it's things, it's outside. It's not the choices I'm making to get the drugs or to be part of the drug life or to drink, which is where my story goes. <clears throat> so now I'm clean from meth and I feel I'm better than everybody else because I quit and I quit cold turkey and I'm done with it and that was it. So obviously I'm not an addict. I have no issues, no problems. I am fine. I can take it or leave it whenever I want. And I start doing the club scenes and I start going out. And, uh, you know, during this process of time when I was selling and dealing and being a bad kid and now the knock to my teachers, I got kicked out of school. Um, oh, and another thing that tells you there's something effing wrong with you and you have problems is I, I went to go live with my sister in England at this time. And I mean, there's no way we could get away with it nowadays. But back when I was 16, 17 years old, I remember bringing eight eight balls in my freaking suitcase overseas to go stay with her on an Air Force base home. Like, who the fuck does that? <laughs> in what world? And I got away with it. I got away with it. And I had her and I got away with it. Anyway. Just the crazy shit that we do that we think is completely normal. And it's like, I'm packing my soap, I'm packing my shampoo, and here I go, packing my eight balls, making sure I have enough for, you know, my visit over there. It's just insane. So, anyway, um, I'm going to the club scenes, and I'm I'm doing my own thing, and I, I, I have a job, you know, and I'm... I pay my my own insurance and I have my car and I have everything set up and I always do well in jobs. I'm always an overachiever. Another aholic thing that I have is I'm a workaholic. So if you hire me for a 15-hour position, I will be a shift leader by the end of that month and I will probably be running the store by the end of that year. And that's just what I used to always do. 
And that's just the way I do. I overachieve. I overdo. I overdo things in abundance. I just, I have to be the best of the best of the best. And I have to always look like I'm, you know, doing well on the outside and stuff my emotions on the inside and grit my teeth and just make sure everybody sees it. Well adjusted, well put together, has no problems. Nothing bad's ever happened to her girl. Like, you know, <clears throat> for some reason, I think this is what people want to see. This is what people want to know. This is how I'm going to survive in life. This is how I'm going to live by making sure everybody thinks I'm okay. Never really wondering if I am. Never even caring if I am really okay. Never really dealing with my underlying problems. Never dealing with the fact that, you know, I was molested and raped and I had a aborted child and I went through so much pain and I, I had all these other issues that were going on in my life. And um, anyway, so now I'm starting to drink. And uh, I remember I never really wanted to drink so much to lose control because my whole thing was to be in control. That's why I loved meth. I was always in control. You know, I thought, you know, with that, I was so alert. I was so aware. So with drinking, I tried very hard to just minimalize my drinking, you know, but I created such a high tolerance to alcohol and I have a high tolerance to pretty much any substance that my normal drinking was somebody else's, you know, smeared face on the floor <laughs> drinking, you know, and I started to realize that, wow, I can drink a man under the table and get up and drive home and nothing will happen to me. Like, I have this control. I'm, I'm controlling. Wow, look at how good I'm doing. I, I can drink anybody under the table. That's, that was an accomplishment for me. I was proud of that. You know, that was my, that was another little, you know, notch on the accomplishments of Angie, you know, that I was able to drink to access and, and still compose my, you know, uh, keep my composure and, and play off this, you know, well-adjusted person. And, and I did. And for a long time, it worked for a really, really long time. It worked. And I, um, I drank on the weekends, drank at night and, uh, you know, and, and there were days that I didn't drink, you know, so I felt like I wasn't an alcoholic, you know, I came from a family of drinkers, you know, my mother didn't drink, but my father drank, uh, consistently, obviously that's how I had my beers when I was younger. And, you know, in our culture or in our family, you don't really need a reason to drink. You know, you don't need to have a, a reason behind drinking. You just drink. It's Tuesday. Let's drink. You know, it's Groundhog's Day. Let's drink. It's Flag Day. Let's drink. <laughs> like there's always a good reason to drink. Um, so drinking for me was just, you know, it was social. It was normal. It was okay. You know, it was not a problem. My dad did it all the time and he worked and he worked well and he always paid the bills and everything was fine. So obviously drinking is not a problem for me, you know, and I did, I went to work every day. I was always on time. I was always overachieving. I was always the best of the best. And I, you know, um, and I, uh, and I, I, I was okay with that, you know, um, hold on, I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> so I was, uh, I'm so sorry. I just lost my train. Somebody ran in really quick. <laughs> That's what happens when you live in sober living. I apologize. So, um, here I am, I'm drinking and I, I, I'm drinking and I'm, I'm running my life just perfectly fine and I'm paying my bills and I'm doing everything. So there's nothing wrong until there's something wrong. 
And drinking and driving was normal for me. That's the way I was raised. That's what my dad did. You know, we were kids in the back of the seat. My dad had a beer between his legs driving to Vegas with us. You know, it was normal. That's just the way life was. There was nothing wrong with it. And so that's what I did. You know, I didn't really see that there was a problem with putting vodka in a water bottle and and, and carrying it around with me and drinking out of an Avion bottle of water filled with vodka. That's totally normal. That's that's total normal behavior. And uh, I just know that people probably saw me and thought like, you know, wow, she really hates water. She makes a face every time she takes a sip, but she's always drinking it, you know? Like, there I was drinking my water all the time. And it wasn't until about 30, I want to say 32, 33, that something had happened at work. I was working for this company that I'd been working for for a really long time. It was a really amazing company. I loved them. I loved working for them. That was another job that I started at 15 hours, overachieved, became, you know, shift leader, became store manager, became district manager, had 13 stores that I was running. And a situation happened at work where a girl got fired and something happened where she had to uh, sue an actual individual person as opposed to suing the company to make it federal versus state or whatnot to make it a civil case, I believe it was. And she chose to use me as the scapegoat, even though I did everything for her. I was actually very, very helpful to her and tried to help her as much as I possibly could. But uh, apparently her lawyer said she's got to pick somebody. Since I was her boss, she claimed sexual harassment on me. And that made me ill to my stomach. And that brought up all these old feelings of how can somebody who'd been so sexually abused as a child and as an adolescent and so used sexually throughout my periods of life, you know, do that to somebody else. How could somebody accuse me of that? Regardless to whether or not the charges would stick or, or anybody would, you know, believe her in my mind, you know, I, I just felt every time I went to a meeting or every time I was around the other coworkers and, you know, as much as everything's supposed to be hush hush in the company, we worked for a beauty supply company and all there is is gossip and, Everybody knows what's going on and everybody's looking at me and I can hear whispers behind my back. And I'm thinking people really believe I did this and I'm sick to my stomach and I'm grossed out by it. And this is where the drinking starts to get worse. And this is where I can't sleep without a bottle of wine. And after that, it turns into two bottles of wine. And after that, it turns into why drink wine, just drink vodka because it's quicker, it's faster, and there's more alcohol content in it. When you start to choose your drinks based on how much alcohol is in it, you know there's a problem. Of course, you don't see it at the time, but when you start reading your labels to see how much alcohol is in each bottle of proof, how much, you know, alcohol, like, you know, percentage is in there versus, you know, ounces, that's when you start to realize there's, there's normal drinkers don't do that you know actually they're doing the opposite they're like oh i'll take the light beer because it's less alcohol and i can drink more you know whatever so now i'm drinking vodka like water and without even knowing not only am i just regularly mentally addicted to it because i need it just to sleep and just to function and just to feel normal and just to feel or actually, let's take that back to not feel, to not feel what I'm feeling, to not feel the horrible feelings, to not feel the things that are now starting to 
come back to me, the the memories of my childhood and everything else. I start to get this thing that uh, alcoholics talk of. And of course, you know, when you're a normal drinker or you think you're a normal drinker, you don't realize why are my hands shaking first thing in the morning? Why am I throwing up? I'm not hungover, but my hands are shaking and I'm throwing up. You know what will fix that? A drink. And that's where the day drinking begins. And that's where I start to do a sip of vodka before I go to work. And that sip of vodka turns into two sips of vodka. And that turns into a couple of sips during lunch. And that turns into drinking all entire day. And because I did such a good job at work and because I was so knowledgeable and I'd been doing it for so long, I could do it with my eyes closed. I remember I was a training manager. And, you know, people talk about these big parties that they go to and everybody shows them the pictures of them the next day of all the crazy shit they did on a blackout. And for me, mine was I would get phone calls the next day from other managers, men twice my age, college graduates. Here I am, this blue haired Hispanic girl that was a, a, you know, a, a high school dropout training these men and they're calling me the next day asking me what program I was teaching them the day before and I'm thinking who the fuck are you I have no idea who you are because I trained them on a blackout I would I would work on a blackout I had I would do these and apparently I was doing it so well while I was drinking that people wanted to know what it was I mean I don't even know if it was a real program that I was teaching them I don't even know if I made up a program and you know, I have no idea. And I sit there and go, oh, I'll get back to you. What was your name again? Okay, I'll, I'll get back. I'll try to look through my notes and see what, what. And I have no idea. I have no clue what I'm doing. And that was scary to me. But it wasn't scary enough for me to quit. It was not scary enough for me to quit. Just made me think to control it better. To, to try to wean off, not drink as much. You know, the lawsuit got dropped. You know, obviously they settled out of court, which actually made me feel worse because it felt like they were trying to shut her up so that they wouldn't drag my name in the dirt. But I was thinking, go through court. You know, I didn't do anything. I want her to be proven wrong. But of course, you know, companies don't want that to be public. So all bad. But now I have the real, true alcoholism, which I'm sure I always had. But now it's surface. Now it's it's there. It's prominent. I am addicted. I need my drink. I have to have my drink. And every day I say I'm not going to drink, I still drink. And it's always I'm not going to drink tomorrow. Never today. Never I'm not going to drink today. It's always I'm not going to drink tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to quit. Tomorrow I'm going to get a hold of this. Tomorrow I'm going to really buckle down and I'm going to stop. But today, just one last day. And it's always one last day. And I remember, I think I had a year of one last days. And uh, that alcoholism turned into hiding it from, and before, you know, I never hid how much I drank. I was proud of how much I drank. I was proud of how high my tolerance was and how high I could drink and how much more I can drink than other people. I could drink more than my husband. I'm married at this point now. I got married in 2002 and uh, to what was my best friend, um, made of my husband. And I'm hiding this from him. I'm hiding how much I'm drinking. You know, we go to the bars, we're watching a, a basketball game and I'm sitting there sipping my 
big old drink, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd order the big beer, you know, the, the, the large schooner, whatever it is. And I would sip it like a lady, you know, I don't know, sipping beer like a lady, but you know, it made sense. I was sipping it like a lady drinking, you know, eating my little appetizers, my little happy hour. But meanwhile, I would keep on going to the bathroom and in the bathroom, I would take my purse and in there I was guzzling vodka. And I got to a point where I didn't want my husband to know how much I was drinking, how much I had to drink in order for my hands not to shake and for me not to throw up and for me to even keep a meal down. And I didn't know how to quit and I didn't know how to stop it. And I didn't know AA at this point. I didn't even, I, I, I knew of a thing called AA, but it wasn't for me. It wasn't for my family. It wasn't, it wasn't what we were doing. This is something I can do on my own because again, Angie can take it. Angie can do it. Angie smiles, buckles down, grits her teeth, gives a crap eating grin and acts like everything's okay. Doesn't want anybody to know she has issues or problems or weaknesses or anything that, you know, could make her feel like she's less than, you know, I'm always the overachiever, the better, the best, you know, whatever. And meanwhile, here I am just drinking myself to death. And I'm doing it in a way where I'm, 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 I'm creating this persona, this fake person, this person that doesn't even really exist in order for you not to know how much I'm drinking. I remember I even would go before work. Now, this is at the point where I had to have bottles of vodka in my trunk at all times. I had to have my supply. And I made good money, so it was no biggie to me. I wasn't drinking, you know, liquor store plastic bottles. I was drinking the good stuff, you know. And I remember I would go through at Ralph's or at Vaughn's. I wasn't going to liquor stores. I was going to grocery stores, dressed, you know, ready for work and whatnot at six o'clock, first thing when they open. And for some reason, for some insane reason, as an alcoholic, I have to prove to the person that I'm purchasing this for that I'm not an alcoholic. Because what person buys two giant bottles of vodka at six o'clock in the morning? Who does that? So what do I do? I go buy some party platters to go along with it. <laughs> I would buy party platters to go along with my bottles of vodka and have some story about how I'm going to run a brunch or there's a baby shower or something that's happening later on that day. And this whole story, like the checkout person even gives a crap, like they even care. But I have to make them believe that I am normal. That this is not for me. This is for a whole group of people. So here I am buying 12 sub sandwiches and a fruit platter. That I, What am I going to do with this? I'm by myself all day with 12 sub sandwiches in my trunk and some fruit platters. I'm giving it to my employees and the work. And I mean, they just think I'm great because I'm constantly feeding them all this party food. But this is the way my mind thinks. My mind thinks that I have to, I have to you know, convince this random person who doesn't even give a crap that I'm not an alcoholic, that I don't have a problem. You know, I had to, everything started to become sneaky. I was hiding bottles all over the house. I had stuffed animals cut out that had bottles inside them. I had, you know, and like I said, I would pour it in my Avion bottle of water and I got so bold as to where I would just straight up drink it on my office in the back room of my work, drinking. While talking to employees, just a bottle of vodka, but it was in a Navy on bottle of water, so nobody knew. I was that comfortable with being not an alcoholic because I would not admit that 
just somebody who drank, you know? I was comfortable. It was normal. It was fine. Until my first DUI. <clears throat> and, you know, actually, my first DUI, let me jump back, was uh, could have happened to anybody, right? Because I was in the car with my husband, and, you know, he had drank. Well, he was more drunk than me, even though I think I drank more than him. But, again, I can hold my liquor. And we're driving, and he's smoking a cigarette outside of the windshield, and he flicks the cigarette out the window, and it hits the windshield of a cop car at 2.30 in the morning. So I get pulled over. So I'm 27 at this point, so this is before my alcoholism got horrible. This is just when I was partying at night. And I get arrested that night, and after that, I was just swore off, never drinking and driving. I would never do it again. You know, I got the drunk tank, did my DUI classes, did everything. He felt super guilty, felt horrible. You know, we bought a breathalyzer to make sure we were okay on the way home and all that stuff. And, and so that was hard lesson learned when I was 27. But fast forward to, you know, 35, around 35, I didn't care anymore. That line had already been crossed. It wasn't drinking and driving. It was just living. It was just living. There was no sober moment in my life at this point. There was never a time at that point where there was not some type of alcoholic substance inside my body. And I loved it and I was okay with it. And I don't even think at that point it was feeling good anymore. I was just feeling normal. It wasn't for partying. It wasn't for socializing. It wasn't for having fun. It was so that I could get work done. It was so that I could I could have lunch. It was so that I could eat. It was so that I could talk to people, you know? And I, at this point, have no idea who I am. I have no idea what I am as a person. I have, I have no clue. Now the blackouts start to get worse. <clears throat> and around 37, I wake up with my car totaled on the side of the freeway and I got in an accident while, of course, drunk because I was never not drunk. And this is me coming home from work. This is not me coming home from a party. This is not in the middle of the night. This is not any time from any cool experience. This is me just doing me. And I get arrested. And this is my second DUI. And I freak out. And again, rock bottoms, you would think this would make me quit. This would make me wake up. This would make me know I have a problem. I need to stop. But I didn't. My husband was so furious with me. He didn't understand. How could you be drunk? You were just clocked off of work. You just got out of work. How could you be drunk? And I had to finally admit to my husband my problem. Well, it wasn't a problem. It was just my lifestyle. Let's get that right. It wasn't a problem yet. It was just my lifestyle. So he's telling me, you never can drink again. You know, we're not drinking anymore. Blah, 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 blah. And I, of course, promise and swear I'll never do it again. Meanwhile, I'm drinking still like a fish behind his back. And that drinking got worse because now I have depression. Now I have, I'm freaking out. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to lose my license. And part of my job is driving around. And what if they put me put the breathalyzer in my car? And how am I going to drive my bosses around breathing into this instrument? And everybody's going to know. And of course, you know, it's not about my health. It's not about, you know, me. It's about how other people are going to see me because that's so freaking important to me, how other people see me. 
And I don't stop drinking. I can't stop drinking because I can't stop shaking and because I have to go to another day of work. And, you know, the smart person or the the healthy person probably would say, you know what, I'm going to go check into a program right now because I obviously need help. But that was not me. I could do this on my own. I'm strong enough. I'm good enough. I'm, I'm, I'll quit tomorrow. I'll quit tomorrow. I'll quit tomorrow. And less than two months later, I pick up my third DUI. And I always say, like, I don't understand. Like, my husband even says, I'm our ex-husband now, didn't understand. How could you still be drinking and driving? How could you still be doing that? And I have no good answer. I really don't. I really wish I could give some kind of real good reason on why I was still drinking, why that didn't stop me, and why. And all I can attribute it to is one of those things where you see a beautiful stained glass window and you want to throw a rocket in. You just want something, you, you, my life, and not that it was a beautiful stained glass window at the time, but before my first, my second DUI, it was. I mean, I had everything. I had every type of insurance you can ask for. I had, you know, three cars that all ran, which is really big for Hispanic. That's awesome. You know, I had this job of pristine. I had bonuses and vacation time and all of this, what you would think on paper was wonderful and great and what people strive for, and it wasn't enough for me. Obviously, it wasn't enough for me. Um, and I also was in a marriage that at that point had already fizzled out. It already ran its course. We were not in love anymore, but we were great roommates, you know, and we were used to each other and very codependent, you know. It's just... Well, we made it this far, you know, we might as well stay together. You know, who else is going to want me? I'm already old, you know, and who's going to want me? And I'm already used to you, so you might as well stay with me, and I might as well stay with you. And we get along really great, and we have the same taste in everything, so let's just stick it out. And I was pretty much dead inside. I was in a job that I had already reached the highest peak. I was in a marriage that I wasn't in love with anymore. I had memories that I wasn't dealing with, and... I had, uh, I remember at this point I wanted to have kids and he said, no, we already agreed we weren't. So that was off the table. So now I had this idea where I wanted kids, but I, he wasn't going to go for it. So now what do I have in life? What, what do I have? I have nothing. And so let's see how bad I can make it. So let's see how bad I can really make it. Cause it already feels like crap. Let me really throw a wrench in it. Let me really make it bad. Let's get another DUI. I remember I saw the front of cars and back of cars. I was on the freeway. It was Memorial. Oh, is it Memorial? It's May 25th. Whatever holidays around the end of May. I want to say it's Memorial Day weekend, but I'm not sure. Anyway, I'm seeing the front of cars, the back of cars, the front of cars, the back of cars, as I'm spinning out of control in a nine-seater ring rover, and I see a tree. And I know I'm going to hit this tree. And all I can think is, thank God this is over. Thank God this is done. I don't have to deal with this shit anymore. I'm done. This is great. I don't have to disappoint my parents anymore. I don't have to worry about quitting drinking anymore. I don't have to worry about how unfulfilling my life is. I don't have to worry about shit anymore. It's over. It's done. And then I woke up in a hospital, handcuffed to a bed, thinking, oh, shit. (laughs) Now I really got to deal with this. I was so pissed that I woke up. I was so mad. I didn't understand why God kept me alone. I should have been dead. And actually, later on, when I'm going to court for this, because I will be going to court for this, I'm looking at the pictures, and it definitely looked with 
them using the jaws of life to remove me from this Range Rover that I had ripped in half. And it looked like they were removing a dead body. I mean, my eyes are rolled in the back of my head and there's three, you know, firefighters pulling me out of this wreckage. And I was limp and I looked dead. I want to see what I'm going to look like when I die. I'm looking at it right now in this picture. And it was scary. But it didn't make me quit. Didn't make me quit drinking. Still kept on drinking. I drank all the way up throughout my whole fighting the case. And I was fighting my case for two years because they wanted to give me eight years for, uh, unfortunately, I'd clipped a car. Thank God I didn't kill anybody. Um, I know that's part of some people's story. I feel for them. I I am 100% grateful that I did not kill anybody and that I didn't cause massive harm. The car that I just grazed, you know, because as everybody saw my car spinning, they stopped and I clipped a car in the front and he was perfectly fine. But at the time, I think it was two months later, he'd gotten in a bicycle accident. He didn't have any insurance. So he used my car insurance thing that it was from the accident that was triggering. But, you know, while I was in court, I could have fought it but it was just a matter of me saying oh i'm wrong but not that wrong you know and uh, if i would have lost the case i had a judge who had had a grandmother who was killed by a drunk driver and i knew for sure if i lost that case i was going to get eight years no matter what hands down so i took a deal and here i am now being this person that thought they had everything in the world everything to live for everything you know that on paper looked great. You know, I had the husband, I had a nice apartment, I had cars, I had the insurance, the long laundry list of things that you would you would want, you know, or that the American dream, whatnot. And now I'm facing prison time. And I take a deal. I get three years. Three years with a felony strike. I'm the first person and the only person in my circle of friends at that time. Now I'm surrounded by it. But at the time, I was the first and only person that we knew in our circle of friends that was going to prison. And I was scared to death. And I couldn't stop drinking. Because now I'm really depressed. Now I'm really freaking out. Now there is no way. My panic attacks are so insane. I have to drink to pass out so I don't have to deal with what's going on in my life. I cannot face what's going to happen to me, what I'm facing, what I'm going to do. And here I am drinking before going to court to tell the judge, please don't give me time. In what insane way is that normal? But that's mine. That's my normal. That's my story. I still cannot stop drinking. I'm facing prison time. I know I'm going to go to jail. I mean, not jail, prison. I know I'm going to prison. And I still can't stop drinking insane and i'm lying to my sponsor and i'm lying to everybody i'm taking dirty chips and i'm going to aa and i'm doing all of these things getting my work card signed going to outpatient and everything else and just timing the test perfectly so that i can continue to drink i'll shake for only a couple of hours just so i can do the pee test and after that i'm back on the shots drinking and getting myself back to normal to my normal manipulating everybody still until I go to prison. First day of prison, I am detoxing the worst. It is the worst feeling 
in the world. I'd never DT'd. I had little tremors and whatnot, but now I'm DT'ing. And again, I am not going to admit to the prison system that I have a problem, that I am an alcoholic and that I am DT'ing. So I white knuckle it and I go through it alone, my own cell, depressed, wanting to kill myself, wanting to die, going through DTs, hating myself, pissed off at life and what life did to me, right? Because I didn't do it. Life did this to me. This is what life did to me. I didn't do it. I finally took responsibility, though. And that was, I think, the first time when I surrendered to the courts. I actually surrendered completely. And I surrendered to the idea that I am an alcoholic, that I do have a problem. Because people that are normal drinkers do not go to prison for drinking. And that's what I went to prison for, not for holding up anybody at gunpoint, not for gang fights, not for domestic violence, not for beating anybody up, not for being a embezzler or anything like that. I went because I drink, because I cannot stop drinking, because I am a true alcoholic. And, you know, prison, I stayed sober. I actually stayed sober for the whole, I, I got three years and a half, uh, at 85, but while I was in there, um, since I did not graduate high school, they had a, a little job, you know, like merits that you can earn. And GD was one of them. And if you get your GD in there, you get eight months off. And so, yes, I took that opportunity. And I did some other classes and some other things, again, overachieving and doing as much as I can in there to get off. And I got out in two years, it's still two years of prison time, but two years. And I stayed sober. But the reason why I stayed sober in prison wasn't because I was working a program or because I was finally done with alcohol or anything. The reason why I stayed sober in prison was merely for one reason only, and that was to have control. Because in prison, you have to be a completely different person. You don't get to be who you are. You don't get to show your weaknesses or any kind of signs of vulnerability. And the one thing you don't want is somebody to catch you slipping and drunk and, you know, manipulate you or use you or you know me being passed out on my cell and or on my bunk and somebody taking all my shit and me not knowing who did it and so I stayed aware I stayed alert and I stayed sober just for that reason not for my health not to be better not because of AA not because of any program but just so I can have control of prison so nobody can take advantage of me and I did it for two years and prison is a whole nother story. I can write a book on that, but we won't go that way. I'll just let you know I experienced prison and it was not fun. When I got out, <clears throat> I stayed sober for almost another year. And uh, I wasn't still working a program. I, I, I thought I was working a program. And I remember I wanted to want to be sober. I wanted to want to be sober. I really did. I really wanted to want to be sober. But I didn't want to be sober yet. I was sober, but I didn't want it. I was doing it. I was doing everything that it took to be sober. I was, you know, white knuckling it through. But I didn't have that feeling inside yet that I wanted to be sober. <clears throat> and so the moment that I... I was in the halfway house when you get out and, you know, you go to the sober livings and with prison, you're on parole and all these different programs that you have to do in order to appease the paroles and blah, 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 blah. 
And so I'm staying sober because I'm getting tested and my parole officer is monitoring me. So everything's always for a reason. I'm doing all of this for a reason. I'm doing this for the end of the goal. But nothing in my mind is thinking I'm going to do this forever. I told people I was. I told some good friends of mine that I was. I told them how proud I was of being sober. And I liked that. I liked that feeling of everybody being proud of me for being sober and the little hand claps and the you know, that feeling that you get the hugs and everything that you get when people get so excited and give you your chips and all that, you know, that I wanted, I wanted that. The sobriety so much was not the part, but I liked what came with the sobriety, but I didn't know that those two things were connected or how to connect them, at least in my head yet. So here I am now. I came from, before I went into prison, I lived in the same apartment building as my parents and my sister. I had a husband, you know, I had a lot of support around me. Now I come out of prison. My parents are in Texas now, taking care of my grandmother. My sister moves away to a place so that she can raise her kids better. And my husband and I are no longer. He's living in a condo by himself. So I'm on my own now. My life is completely different. No job, no husband, no home, no nothing. They still love me. They're still there for me. They'll still support me, send me money, make sure I'm okay. But they're not there with me anymore. And I'm so used to having them with me at all times. So now I'm alone and I'm alone. And now I'm, I'm, I'm left to face me myself. I'm, I'm left to deal with my own head and my own thoughts without the distractions of taking care of other people and making sure other people are okay. And being that people pleaser that I was before. And when the holidays hit, <clears throat> that time of loneliness and that memory of what we used to have and what I don't have anymore. And I just, I mean, do we really need a reason sometimes when we're true drinkers that are not really working the program? I went right back in and I had my relapse and that relapse would last me up until pretty much just recently. I kept on trying and I went right back into, I mean, it was a matter of, weeks when the shots turned into gallons again you know i mean it didn't take long when they say never better or was worse i did not understand that until i did it myself this last run that i had with alcohol got me a bleeding ulcer um that blurry vision that you get with your alcohol uh stuck i had 2020 vision beforehand now i have to wear glasses that's a weird one um you know, I was getting beginning signs of cirrhosis in the liver. My kidneys were starting to fail. Um, yeah. Joints started hurting more. The bleeding ulcer is the good one, right in my esophagus. That one was great. That's from uh, from throwing up blood. Yeah, that's beautiful. Classy girls go to prison <laughs> and uh, throw up blood. That's, that's what I want to be portrayed as. So um, here I am fighting again trying to want to want to be sober, not really letting it click. Finally, I put myself back into a program. I do outpatient. It's not working. I'm still doing that manipulation where I'm trying to figure out when they test so that I can, you know, drink accordingly. And uh, I don't have to do it for parole anymore. I'm doing this for myself. So there's still that want, at least. There's that I want to want to be sober, but I don't want to be sober yet. And now finally, I go through a few programs. I get, you know, a nice 100 days. Something happens. I drink again. I get another 
you know, two months, three months, drink again. And finally, now, this is my, I don't want to say it's my last stretch. But I have, I believe it's a good 101 days. I didn't check my little chip finder. I got my little app on my phone, but I know it's over 100 days now. And this is my first 100 days of, I would like to say, true sobriety. Not 100 days that I didn't get caught. Not 100 days that I was able to trick you or manipulate you and make you think that I was sober and that I was doing the program and I was not white knuckling it. But this is my first 100 days of true, real, yes, this is what I want. I stopped wanting to want it. Now I actually truly want it and love it and embrace it. And I cannot imagine my life now. The way that I couldn't imagine my life without alcohol is now how I can imagine my life without sobriety. And that is one of the most beautiful things that's ever happened in my head. And no matter what I had before, vacations, money, car, prestige, whatever it was that I thought, status, the appearance of, what I have today is priceless compared to all of those things. There's nothing that I could that I would want to give up. And at this moment now, I'm in a sober living house living with 14 other people. You could probably hear them in the background right now arguing about whose bacon is what and whose toasted bread last or not. And that's okay. That's my life now. And it's okay. And I love it. I love it now. This is the first time I actually loved my life. And I love the little things. And if this is the worst thing that happens today is that somebody woke me up because somebody else used their peanut butter, then I am doing great. Because that's not the worst thing that used to happen to me. I can deal with this. And I love it. And I love the fact that I know who I am today. And I love the fact that I'm, I'm meeting myself basically for the first time. That is just weird to me. Because throughout all my walks of life, I was pretending to be the kid that was okay and happy. Then I was pretending to be the kid that wasn't getting beat up in school. Then I was pretending to be okay with being popular. And I was pretending to be okay with my situation. I was pretending to be okay with my husband. I was pretending to be okay with the work. I was pretending, 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 pretending all the time. I was putting on some facade and new face, something in some way that people can see me and perceive me because it was more important to me that you thought something of me than I thought of myself. And now I can give a shit what you think. I could give a shit what you think. There's not, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm finally comfortable in my own skin. I'm finally comfortable with my own head and I'm finally comfortable with my truth. And I have to say, this is the first time I've ever said this story consecutively all at once. This is the first time that I've ever done this before in my life, saying my story the way I have today. And I say, I hope you got something out of it, and I hope maybe in some way, shape, or form it touched you. But I know for me, I'm very comfortable with everything that I said, because for the first time, it was all the truth. There was not one lie in what I said right now. And for me, that feels amazing. So thank you very much for letting me share. Angie, you're really poetic. I think you should write that book about prison and your whole story. You're very well-spoken, very poetic. And it doesn't even seem like you're trying. And perhaps that's because you're so honest and vulnerable right now. 
Thank you. Thank you for sharing <laughs> so early in your sobriety. I, when I was early in sobriety, I didn't think I'd ever forget how bad it was. Mm-hmm. But I've completely forgot a few years later. And that's why we, that's why I need to keep going to meetings because I remember wanting to want to be sober. Fuck, yes. I wanted to be sober so bad. But mm-hmm. I just couldn't, I wanted what everybody else wanted for me. It's like, you guys, I want to want to be sober. And mm-hmm. I remember that desperate, like, oh, and your description of manipulating and personas and like, you're doing the talk, but it, your heart wasn't in it. And it's so obvious from your share oh, yeah. that your heart is there now. I plagiarized everything. Whenever I heard somebody say something wonderful, like in a group, I would remember it. I'd write it down. I would study it so that next time when I'm in group, I would say the same thing so I could get the hand claps and the pats on the back. You know, it's like they weren't even my words, but I know that it was going to work. And I knew that the instructor was going to get, you know, um, impressed with me. And I knew that, you know, and it's like, who am I bullying? What do I care? But I just wanted everybody to think I had these little nuggets of wisdom, you know, and I wanted the, the notoriety. what is that called? That, um, I wanted the, the, the recognition of it, you know, and it's so silly. It's silly. <laughs> do that. <laughs> Call it plagiarizing. You know, I plagiarized my way throughout everything. I know. See, you're poetic. You're clever with your words. Thank you. Um, yeah. And you know, you, it's exhausting, right? Doing all of that. I, I love when you, at the end there, your, your end was so touching. It's just like one gigantic, amazing quote, but you're, you're talking about like, I don't care what people think of me, me anymore. And that doesn't mean that you're an asshole now and you don't care. It's that you're so okay with you. That mm-hmm. what you think of me doesn't bother me anymore because I'm okay with me, right? Is that, does yeah. that that's what it reminds yeah. me of? Well, at this point now, it's like I don't do anything wrong to anybody. I don't hurt anybody. I don't hurt anybody for personal gain, for sure. I have no ill will towards people. I can't have it in my soul to like want bad for other people to see them fail so I can feel better about my situation. I don't compare myself to other people. So, for me, if somebody has a problem with me, because I'm so chill now, like I'm so like laid back now that it's like, wow, you really have some issues. Like I feel for you. Like I'm not even mad at you for not liking me. I really pray that you're going to be okay with it. Because if you can't get along with somebody like me, who's like so giving and willing to like be accepting of you, then you've got some issues. Like, you know, because I won't, I won't put you down. I don't, I always build people up around me. I never, you know, I, I just, I, that's just not the person I am today. You know, I used to pride myself on ragging on people and I'd talk so much crap about people all the time to put them down to make myself feel better. And now I can't do that. I'm not capable of doing that. So honestly, it's like really funny. Like I used to like, if somebody didn't like me, I would like jog my brain and I would just dissect every conversation we had. And I wonder where I went wrong, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like, what did I, what did I not do right this time? Like, where did I miss the steps? You know, cause there was something I said that it didn't come out right. You know, I plagiarized wrong, you know, I copied down the information wrong or whatever. I wrote the wrong answer, you know, basically like I wasn't passing the test, but now it's like, I know everything's genuine for me. So it's like, it's so easy to talk now because I'm not trying to 
figure out the words to say to you. I'm not trying to figure out what I think you want to hear and how I think they're going to feel about me once I say it to make you feel better about who I am. And for some reason, I mean, not for some reason, for the obvious reason, I have so much better relationships now. You know, I used to always like every, there was not one bar or one show or one club that I went to that I, I didn't get kicked out of for some kind of fight, <laughs> like every single one of them. I remember one time I looked like a, a, a mounted Marlin, you know, like they were holding me sideways, you know, pulling me out of the club. And I was just yelling at my, you know, my, my ex-husband and my friends, like, meet me at the car, you know, <laughs> shoveled out. You know? And it's just like, and that was normal. Everybody, you know, there's so many like bands I missed. I only made it through the opening acts because that's, <laughs> I was getting kicked out. And I would always think like, I don't know what it is. There's, there's some magnet on my head that says, you know, F with me, you know, and it's like, it's everybody else's fault, not mine. Right. You know? And now it's like, nobody like messes with me. Like I have no fights. Like I, I, I have not had like an argument with somebody or some kind of a tip or fight in so long. (laughs) It's like, maybe it was me, you know, like (laughs) the common denominator here. Yeah. Like hmm. (laughs) the common denominator is me in every situation. Maybe I was the problem. (laughs) What? (laughs) I have never heard of stuffed out teddy bears or stuffed animals with bottles inside them that is so clever my alcoholic mind is like i'm gonna store that one away no that's horrible oh yeah the party platters right buying party platters with my alcohol no the the, i had this like sebastian from like poor sebastian i had a little mermaid yeah i I, of course i make a joke of it right i had a stuffed crab because he was like the hard (laughs) shell you know he was a big, huge, like, my my ex-husband had bought it from the Disney store, and it was Sebastian. It was big, you know? And inside him was, like, three bottles, you know? So it was my stuffed crab, you know? <laughs> oh, that's horrible. so hilarious. I can't wait to read your book, Angie. <laughs> yeah, I, I started actually writing one. It's called I'm Not WF7382, anyone anymore. And that's a, that was my... Uh, my WF number and um your prison uh, was that your like prison number yeah your- yeah that's my CDC number and it's basically a story mainly about prison but kind of like going back into like why I got there because you can't separate it it's yeah it's like describing like how the bus ride was and how at one point I thought I was better than these people but now I'm one of them they're like I'm like these are my people like it's you know blues versus greens you know <laughs> which is weird but it, I, I wrote it because um I remember one of the things and you know my ex-husband now that I can tell you at the time I thought there was no problems but he was very he he verbally abused me in a way where it wasn't so bad about like my looks or anything like that. It was more about my intelligence. And I remember uh, when I wanted to go back to school at one point, he said, well, you couldn't even make it through high school. How do you think you're going to make it through college? And uh, mm-hmm. God, that was like stinging words for me. Mm-hmm. So on my 42nd birthday, when I got out of prison, I, I enrolled myself into college and became a college student, full-time college student for the first time. And I, I intend to go back. Um, but COVID hit, you know, and like everybody else, you know, um, things got stopped and I'm not the best on the computer and I didn't have Wi-Fi in my situation. I didn't have a laptop. So, you know, I had um, issues going back to school and then I relapsed. So, um, but I put that on hold, but I'm going back. But I remember I took an English class and 
And that was my first essay. And everybody, you know, I was I was a first year student. So I'm with these 18 year olds that they're talking about their monumental moments in life. And they're talking about prom and grad night and mine's prison. <laughs> I was like, I was like mm. Well, the teacher probably liked yours best. <laughs> yes, they did. Everybody was like, oh my God. Because I, I remember the last like part of it was like, here I am. And this, I, I, I said, uh, you know, badly edited documentaries and Orange is the New Black will never prepare you for what you're in store for. Here I am, you know, and I was describing the butts and like the gross people in there and they're like, you know, showing their genitalia and all this other stuff. And I was going through detail and I said, you know, how the hell did I get here? Welcome to fucking prison. And that was like the end of my like little story. And everybody's like, I want to read chapter two. <laughs> everybody's like excited. And then they said episode two. And they're like, I want to, I want to watch episode two. You know, I was like, oh, wow. Thank you. Like, I was very, I was very flattered by that. So coming from like, you know, having that stigma in my head set in there, because again, a million people can tell you you're smart and great, but it's the one person that tells you you're an idiot that you remember, you know, like, it's it's horrible that our brains work that way but Mm -hmm. everybody can tell you like you know that you're a good person and everything but you're going to remember the one person that was a jerk and um and so for me coming from being told that I I wouldn't be able to do college and then getting nothing but A's I mean my grade point average was I think I was at a a 3.7 or something like that and it was it was wonderful you know and I and I did a full load I did algebra I did English I did you know and coming from like not being in school since I was 15, you know, I got kicked out at 15 and here I am at 42 years old, you know, doing this all over again and, and doing well. I was, I was very happy with myself through that. So I really do intend to go back. That's good. It's another place you can be who you are, you know, you mm-hmm. get to be, your, you talked about that. So I have one more question. You, well, you talked about, you know, the drinking and how it wasn't like drinking. You were drink. That was just you functioning. Like, how could you be drunk on your way home from work? This is like, at that point, you had said at that point, I had no idea. At some point you said, I had no idea who I was or who I Mm-mm. am. And then at the end, you kind of talk about the opposite of that, finding yourself in the room. So yeah, talk to me or talk to those out there that are perhaps still suffering. Um, what has AA given <sighs> to you? And perhaps it's duplicating some of what you already said, but why should they come to the rooms? Well, for me, for me, and I think for a lot of people that I hear, you know, um, they say grateful alcoholic. And I've now included that to myself as a grateful alcoholic, because when you're living what you would call a a non, you know, alcoholic life, or, or at least not, not identifying as an alcoholic yet because it takes a long time to get to that point where you truly you'll say it you know but when you full-on mean it and you know like I am an alcoholic and I'm okay with it I'm not ashamed of it um you start to actually do the process you then can start to build onto the to the work that goes behind it and it is a lot of work I mean you know it's a simple program but it's a lot of work it's hard because it hurts because you really start to think about who you really are and how you really feel about things but the one beautiful thing about it is that you get to understand yourself. It's like, for me, it was like, I met myself for the first time and I realized I'm, I'm a good person, you know? And, and I realized why people actually were drawn to me and why people actually liked me and why my family loves me so much and why, you know, I, I had, you know, relationships and stuff like that, you know, and, and, and it was beautiful for me to find that out. 
it was also just really great to like meet me, you know? And I remember the first time I laughed at something sober, I was like, oh my God, I genuinely find that funny. Like, you know, because I was watching movies that I watched when I was drunk that I thought were the best. And I was like, wow, this is stupid, you know? Like, and, and it's funny that the way your mind changes so much. So when you start to realize like, wow, I really like that color and I really like this food and I really like that movie and I really think this is funny and I really think that's mean, you know, and I think that's a horrible thing to do and these are my real true values and it's not a value of a collective that I've picked up from a whole bunch of different people. This is my true belief. And you start to just have this like comfort in yourself, like this just, you don't have to overthink things. And for me, and I don't know if this happens for a lot of people, but it seems like it when I'm, when I'm talking to my groups and I, I do a lot of work now with therapists and in my, in my circles, and I, I pay attention to what other people are saying. I finally now have learned to pay attention to the similarities and other people's stories. And one of them that I find is that it's this people pleasing and this, and this wanting to be liked and wanting to belong and wanting to be a part of. And, and there's something lacking, there's something missing in us that, that we don't know what it is that we're, we're lacking. And a lot of people think it's, it's a relationship or it's mom and dad or it's, it's a, you know, a job or it's, it's something, it's, it's something tangible, something that you can touch, something that you can see or feel. But what I found for me to be my truth is I was missing myself. This whole time that I was missing something, I was missing me. Like that was the missing link in my like happiness was that I was always being that person that everybody else wanted me to be. I was never being the person that I was truly happy being in fear that people would reject it. You know, so for me, if I came up with this fake persona of this of this person that I created for you to like or dislike, if you didn't like it, oh well, it was never really me. So I was never really rejected. That was my safe data. That was my way of coping with the fact that it's okay that you didn't like that person because it wasn't even me anyway. You know, and so for me to now actually know me and to be comfortable with it and like it so much that it's like, if you don't like that person, I'm okay with it because I like it. And, and it's, and it was cause I was missing me. That was the big part that I was missing. You know, I was, I was doing everything for everybody else and for the image and for, you know, that, uh, fake it till you make it, but in the wrong way, you know, um, Pretending that I liked the job that I was doing, pretending that I liked the people that I was working with, pretending that I liked, you know, the friends that I had. <clears throat> um, and that was another thing that I found, like, I, I finally was able to step back and be like, I'm working so hard to get you to like me, but I never really stopped to think, do I even like you? Like <laughs> you, you know, and when I finally was able to ask that question, like, let me, let me look at you. You know, you're a judgy person or you're a, a a mad person or whatever. And it's not that I have to hate you or I have to do anything vindictive to you, but do I even like you? Because I stopped wondering whether or not I even like them. I just wanted them to like me. And now that I don't have that anymore, it's so freeing, you know, it's so wonderful. So anybody that's out there that's struggling with that, it's it's not easy. And I'm not going to say it's, it's easy. It, it took me... Oh God, well, 43 years, I'm 43 years old, but, uh, for just working in, in actually working the steps and working the program, it's been since last September that I finally got honest with myself and buckled down and I started working a program. 
And so it's been since September. I think I would I would honestly say it wasn't until early January when I had my little lapse that I finally started to know me. And I knew it wasn't what I wanted anymore. I knew I didn't want to drink anymore. And I didn't want to drink anymore because not because I didn't want to disappoint other people, but because I didn't want it anymore. And that was finally the freeing part was that I knew I was too good for drinking. I was too good for it. And and that was a beautiful feeling to finally feel that. So eventually it will stick. Eventually something will click. And they say that too. They say stay in the rooms, you know, all those cliches that they say. I'm and this is I hate cliches. Like I knew that the, they send me those like inspirational things that have butterflies and flowers in the back. Oh God, I hate that stuff. <laughs> but <laughs> there's some truth to some of it, you know. Like yeah. so once I, I stopped being such a, you know, I'm I'm a cynical person, it's like it's it's true. Stick around and eventually the miracle will happen. Like eventually something's going to stick. Something's going to stand out. Something's going to hit you. Something's going to be that aha moment. And I never knew what people were talking about. And I always thought it was BS. But it's if you really, really, if you're in a position right now where you want to want it, stay. Because you are going to eventually want it for yourself for the right reasons. And it's going to be freaking amazing. It's going to be amazing. And again, when they say you're going to have a life beyond your wildest dreams, <clears throat> if your wildest dreams are still you want money, cars, fame, you know, fortune, all that kind of stuff, then you're in it for the wrong reasons. But if a life beyond your wildest dreams is that you can finally sit still, be comfortable with yourself and those around you and feel peace, then yes. I am now living a life beyond my wildest dreams because I never thought that I would be able to sit down and have peace and just be good, you know, without my racing thoughts, without my crazy, you know, over-obsessive, compulsive head. And it's priceless to me. That to me is priceless. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.